Okay, good evening, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. It's good to see you all tonight. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And we left off two weeks ago at verse 30. Matthew chapter 12. And we'll actually, let's pick up reading in verse 22. Matthew 12, 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But the Pharisees heard this. They said, This man cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property, unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with his generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be also with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, tonight asking uh, for you to teach us, Lord, by your word. 
Lord, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, that you would give to us understanding and wisdom. Lord, help us to um, be with you, Lord, and not against you. Lord, to be those who are gathering with you and not scattering, Lord, and seeking to overthrow and undermine your kingdom. So, Lord, whenever we come to your word and we see the clear teaching of the Bible, we pray that we would not resist it, Lord, as the scribes and Pharisees did, but rather that we would prove ourselves to be your disciples by humble submission to your word. So, Father, help us tonight as we study, and Lord, we pray that you would give to us the very mind of Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are in this passage where there's this controversy that's risen up after Jesus uh, heals a man who is possessed by a demon. All right, this healing of this demonic man has led some of the people to ask and say, this can't be the son of David, can it? Meaning the, the promised Messiah, the one who was promised in the Old Testament who would come from the line of David. And it was commonly believed and known that when the Christ came into the world, that he would come from the line of David. So some of the people are asking this question, can this be the son of David? Because when the son of David appears, when the Christ appears, he won't do greater works than this, will he? Right? That these works are evidence, they're manifesting to the people that Jesus is the Christ. Well, when the Pharisees hear this, they then say, well, no, this isn't the case at all. But rather, he's doing these miracles, casting out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. He has power over the demons because he has a possession by Satan himself. And it is through the power of Satan that he's able to do these things. And this leads to this lengthy discourse about this situation and what is taking place here. And Jesus is showing how utterly ridiculous this is, that they would accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Because if Satan's kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. A house divided is going to fall. So how can he be doing this? It would, Satan would be undermining his own interests, which is to steal, kill, and destroy. And yet here, he's liberating people, taking them from bondage to freedom. So how could Satan, why would Satan have any interest in doing those things, right? It doesn't make any sense at all. But rather, the true reality is that Christ is displaying that his power is greater than Satan because he is entering into his house and binding him and then plundering his goods, delivering him, and he's actually at war against Satan. But not only is he at war against Satan, he's also at war, or there is conflict with those who follow Satan, those who follow Satan and those who follow Christ, right? They are, you're either with Christ or you are against Christ. And it's very important that we understand this concept because many people believe that they can live somewhere in between, that you can just live in the middle, be indifferent, right? I don't get involved in these things, but this isn't the way the Bible addresses it. Christ says you're either with me or you are against me. And to be with him has to be according to his own definition, right? That we are believers in him, that we are followers of him, that we're doing his will, that we're obeying him, right? Doing those types of things. And if we're not living that life, even if a person isn't going out blaspheming God, right, in an outward sense, they're not going out burning down churches, attacking and trying to kill Christians. Maybe they're just uh, living life uh, just the way that they want, just doing whatever they please, but they don't have any interest in the things of God. Well, if they're living that way, they are against Christ, right? They are against him, and this is the way it is. So let's pick up in verse 30. 
And then we'll continue our way through this passage. Verse 30 says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Here again, only two options. We are either in the kingdom of God or we are in the kingdom of Satan. We are either with Christ or we are against Christ. We either work for him or we work against him. These are the two options. So we need to make sure that we are with Christ. Because if we're not with him on the day of judgment, then we will be cast into outer darkness. And the way that we determine if we are with him now is, are we working for Christ? Are we doing his will? Are we living a life pleasing to Christ? Right? We are slaves of Christ. And if we are slaves of Christ, then we need to do the will of our master. But if we are doing uh, the, sla- the will of Satan, living in sin, then whatever we say about our love of Christ, that we belong to him, then it's, there's no reality. It's not true if we're doing the will of Satan. So we're either with Christ or we are against him. Also in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, we'll see here that to be with Christ is to be with his father and also to be with his people. Right? There's a one-to-one-to-one correlation in these things. Matthew 10, verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Right? To receive Christ, or, or to receive uh, one of his people, is to receive Christ, and to receive Christ is to receive the Father. The Father, the Son, and the people right, are all united together. So we cannot say that we are for Christ and then oppose his people, reject his people, have nothing to do with his people. This is very common as well. You'll find people who say that they're Christians, that they love Christ, they love God, they got it all worked out, but they don't want anything to do with the church. Well, how can you be one of Christ's followers and not have anything to do with his people? It doesn't make any sense. It's impossible according to this. So they say they're for him, but if they're not for his people, then they're not for Christ. Because Christ and his people are united together. To love Christ is to love his people. So if we don't love his people, then whatever we say, we do not love Christ. Just as to love a man entails that you love his wife, his children, his family. How could you say that you love me, but you hate my wife and children? That doesn't make any sense. Because they're one with me. They're part of my family in the same is true with Christ. Second Chronicles chapter 19. Now that's also, it's very easy for people to say that they love Christ. But it's much more evident if they love his people. Because we see that day in and day out. Second Chronicles 19 verse 1. It says, Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? But there is some good for in you, for you have removed the Asherah from the land, and you have set your heart to seek God. Here, King Jehoshaphat, who was a good king, he was a righteous king of the south, Yet here, the prophet rebukes him because he joined an alliance with Ahab, the wicked king of the north. 
And he's saying, should you help the wicked? Should you love those who hate the Lord? How can we love someone who hates our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Right. How can we help someone in this way, this type of an alliance? He's not talking about in an emergency, uh, something like that that happens in going and assisting someone. But in this type of an alliance, this type of a union with a wicked man like that, he's saying, how can you do that? How can you love someone who hates the Lord? How can you be united to a man like that? Help the wicked love those who hate the Lord. So he's rebuking him for those things. So we need to be with Christ and with his people. And we need to be against Satan and against Satan's people, right? Not being united together with them in these types of unions and relationships. Verse 31, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Here, he's speaking of this sin, this particular sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Right? Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. There are many sins that people commit right in this world, in this life. Many blasphemies that people commit. And many of those... Though they are sin, though they must be repented of, right? They cannot be forgiven without repentance. But if a man repents, then God will forgive him. He will forgive him of this sin. And we could go through the Bible and see many great sins that were committed and people receive forgiveness for those sins. But here there is a particular sin, blasphemy against the spirit that shall not be forgiven. In Mark, it calls it, an eternal sin. Mark 3, 28 through 30, he calls it an eternal sin, a sin for which there is no forgiveness, this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, the question is, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And this has been uh, a question that has uh, caused much consternation for many people over the years, right? Many people over the years. Now, some people want to use this sin as justification for why they can't repent. I've heard people do this, that they'll say, well, I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, so there's no salvation for me. Therefore, there's nothing I can do. I want to be saved. I want to repent, but God won't let me because I've committed this great sin so that they can then justify going and living in sin and not doing what they need to do, not repenting of their sin. So people will do and use this in the wrong way. But here Jesus is talking about it in the correct way. So what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, here the context is that the Pharisees are accrediting the obvious, clear work of the Spirit, and they are accrediting it to the work of Satan. They are seeing the work of the Spirit right in front of their eyes, and then they're saying that what the Spirit is doing is actually from the devil, right? Is actually from Satan. This is what they are doing in the presence of Christ. So they're seeing it, they are rejecting it, and then they are blaspheming the obvious work of the Spirit of God, crediting his work to the power of Satan. Now, when someone is doing this, it shows that they are so deluded, that they are in such sin, so hard-hearted, so calloused against the things of God, that there is a point where a person has committed a sin 
and they are so deep in their sin and so hard-hearted that there is no opportunity for repentance, like it is with Esau. Esau sought repentance with tears, but it could not be found for him because he had committed so many sins and was so hard-hearted in his sin that there comes a point where a person is beyond salvation, right? Where God has given them over to their sin, he's handed them over to Satan, and they're going to be destroyed. And that is what is happening here. They are committing this sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit by accrediting the clear, obvious work of the Spirit to the power of Satan. And that is blasphemy, right? To say that God is satanic, that God is the devil. That is a great blasphemy to commit. Jesus says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Right? Now, again, he means this in the sense that there were people during his time on earth who would say careless words about the Son of Man who would say things about him, who would speak words against him, maybe evil words, uh, critical words, harsh words against Christ. Even the apostle Peter, when he denied Christ three times, he, in a sense, spoke words against the Son of Man because he denied him and said, I'm not one of his followers. But he did that, right, in a temporary sense. He did that in the the moment of uh, battle, in the heat of the moment, and he carelessly said those things, and he received forgiveness of that. Or if there was someone else who spoke a, a word carelessly, not thinking about what he's saying, not considering the weight of it, they could be forgiven that sin. But if someone speaks against the Holy Spirit, then it will not be forgiven him. When someone is doing this in such a proud, hard, hard, hard-hearted way, then they will not receive forgiveness, neither in this life, nor the life to come, nor the life to come. First John chapter 5 speaks of the, a sin that leads to death. 5.16 5.16 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. So if a brother is committing a sin not leading to death, then he's saying we should ask God, we should pray for them, we should pray that God would forgive them, that they would repent, and that they would receive forgiveness. And that's good and fine. But if someone is committing a sin that leads to death, then he says we should not pray for them. Don't pray for that person. So there is a time and a place where we cease to pray for their salvation. An example of this is if you read the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, multiple times, God tells Jeremiah not to pray for the people. He says, do not pray for this people because I'm not going to forgive them. God had already determined to destroy them because they had gone so far into their sin that he had already given them over to sin. And he commands Jeremiah, the prophet, do not pray for this people. Don't pray for their salvation because I've already determined to destroy them. So here in John chapter 5, I think he's speaking of apostasy. When a person uh, walks away from the faith, those people who he describes earlier in 1 John who were not of us, right? Because they left us, they walked away from us. And if they had been of us, they would have remained 
but it became clear that they were not of us because they left us, right? They walked away from the faith. And many times, when people walk away from the faith, what do they start doing? They start blaspheming, right? Blaspheming Christ, blaspheming the Spirit, blaspheming the church, blaspheming the truth, right? They're doing all these kinds of things. And here he's saying that they shall not be forgiven. Okay, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Here Jesus says, he's using this metaphor, this illustration of the tree and its fruit to describe the people, right? To describe the people. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or the tree bad and its fruit bad. There needs to be unity, cohesion, consistency, right? In the tree, what it is by nature and the fruit that it produces. If the tree is a bad tree, then it's going to produce bad fruit. If it's a good tree, it's going to produce good fruit. Now here, the the way he means this is that these people, his opponents, they claim to be children of God. They claim to be good trees. But what kind of fruit are they producing? They're producing evil, rotten fruit. So you're saying that you're a good tree, but your fruit is obviously displaying that you're not a good tree, but rather you are an evil tree. So either make the tree good, right? Be a good person and produce good fruit, or be an evil person and produce evil fruit. But quit limping between these two opinions. Quit saying that we are children of God. We are children of Abraham while not producing the fruit of repentance. They're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, and they are not doing the deeds of their so-called father, Abraham, because Abraham didn't do the things that they did. Would Abraham have said that Jesus had a demon in him? Would Abraham have blasphemed the Holy Spirit? He would not have done any of those things. What did Abraham do, according to John chapter 8? He rejoiced to see the day of Christ. He saw it and was glad. Abraham longed to see the days of Christ. And had Abraham lived in the days of Christ, he would have been one of his disciples. He would have been one of his followers. He would not have been blaspheming him. Yet these people are claiming to be children of Abraham while at the same time doing the exact opposite of what Abraham did. And so Jesus is telling them, you're claiming to be a good tree, yet your fruit is revealing the exact opposite, that you are an evil tree and you don't have good fruit. So you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is the same as John the Baptist's message when the crowds came out to, to him and he was telling them this. Do not say that we have Abraham as our father because God can from these stones raise up children of Abraham. He said, already the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And he tells them, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You are trusting in your heritage, trusting in your the, the blessings, the benefits that God has given to you over and above the nations. But those blessings are only beneficial if you believe, if you repent. 
And what is the whole purpose of the oracles of God, the Old Testament? To point people to Christ, to point them to faith in Christ. But now Christ is here, and what are they doing? Saying he has a demon. Saying he has a demon. The exact opposite of what their, their scriptures told them to do. John 8, 39. John 8, 39 through 47. John 8, 39. This is in a long dialogue that Jesus is having with his disciples, right? These are people who are claiming to be his disciples. But Jesus knows what they really are. Verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil and you do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. So there, again, they're claiming that Abraham is their father. And that's why Jesus says, well, okay, if Abraham is your father, if you're his children, then do his deeds. Do the deeds of Abraham. Bear the fruit that Abraham bore in his life. But you're not doing that. But on the contrary, you're trying to kill me. A man who told you the truth, which I heard from God, he says, this Abraham did not do. Abraham did not live the way you people live. So quit calling yourself his children because you're not his children. Whose children are they in John 8? They're the children of the devil. That's who their, their father is, the devil. Well, that's the same as what he's dealing with here in chapter 12. Either make the tree bad and its fruit bad or make it good and its fruit good. He's telling them, look at your fruit. Look at your life. Quit calling yourself a good tree. Be honest about who you are. You are wicked, evil people. Repent, right? Repent of your sin and then bear the fruits of repentance. Verse 34, you brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Here, Jesus is calling them names. He's calling them a name. This is not a term of endearment to call someone a brood of vipers, a den of snakes, of poisonous vipers. You're a bunch of snakes, is what he says. No one wants to be called a snake unless they're a weirdo. But no normal person wants to be called a snake. And yet he's calling them, you're a brood of vipers, of deadly vipers, poisonous snakes. This is what they are spiritually. He's using the term viper to describe their spiritual condition, what they are internally and spiritually. Now, I have to stop here. 
if someone does this today, what would people, wouldn't everyone just lose their mind and say, this is so unloving, so harsh, so mean, but aren't we supposed to walk in the way that Christ walked? Well, doesn't Jesus do this? He does it to his opponents and he does it to their face, right? He's doing it publicly, calling them these things, right? So we have to understand this and practice it in the right context, in the right way. He says, how can you being evil speak what is good? How can you, with an evil heart, speak good things, speak good, right? It's impossible. How can an evil tree bear good fruit? It can't happen. It is impossible for that to happen. You have an evil heart, and that is why you are speaking evil things. The evil here that they're speaking is saying he has a demon, saying that he does this by the power of Beelzebub. They are evil people, and that is why what's coming out of their mouth is evil, because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The heart is the source, and the mouth is the stream, right? It is what reveals what is on the inside. Now, here again, people will often say, you can't see my heart. You can't see what my heart is like. Well, we can't see your heart, but we can hear your words. And if your words are evil, then what do we know about the heart? Right. It's an evil heart. If the words are good, then we know it's a good heart, right? We can hear their words and see their deeds and know what's on the inside. That's what Jesus is saying here. You have an evil heart and it's manifested in your evil words, the things that you are saying. 1 Samuel 24, 13. 1 Samuel 24, 13. This is the same principle that... David understood and applied to his opponent, Saul. 1 Samuel 24, 13 says, As the proverb of the ancients says, says, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. A wicked man produces wicked fruit. This is the way it works. Also, Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is the center of the man. The heart is what determines the course of the man. So if the heart is evil then everything's going to be evil. The mouth, the eyes, the hands, the feet, the thoughts, everything is going to be evil if the heart is evil. That's what Jesus is saying here. How can you, being evil people, speak what is good? You are spiritual snakes, and that is why you have a forked tongue. This is why you have venom and poison in your mouth, on your lips, because you are vipers. You are a viper, viperous people. Verse 35, the good man out of his good treasure, uh, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Here, again, the deeds of the man correspond to the heart, to the heart. The good man has good treasure. The good treasure is his good heart. And as a result of the good heart that he has, he produces good. He produces good deeds, good works. His words are good, right? He's doing these types of things. The evil man has an evil heart. The evil treasure is his evil heart. And then he produces evil deeds 
out of his evil heart. His works are evil, the works of the flesh, right? The deeds of the flesh. His works, his words, all that about him is evil. Now here, Jesus, of course, is not saying that a person can make himself a good man on his own, by his own free will, or that people are good by their own nature. Of course, we know that that's not what Jesus is teaching. Here, he's talking about, he's talking about faith without works is dead. He's talking about works, your mouth, your words, as the manifestation of what is in your heart. We know that all men are born, are by nature, children of wrath. So all of us are born as evil men with evil hearts. And if we remain in that condition, what will we produce? We will produce evil, right? This is what the way it is. We are born as children with an evil heart. With We are evil people. And then as we grow, <clears throat> the children begin to express what is in their heart through sin, right? Through sin. And this happens, and if they remain in that state, then they will produce more and more sin. It will mature and grow within them so that they produce greater manifestations of sin in their life. The way that we become a good man is through conversion, right. through the work of the Spirit. So it takes the power of God to convert someone from being an evil man to a good man. But when God converts a person, he does change him. He's not an evil man anymore. He's a good man now. Right, So we can say that a person is a righteous man, that he is a good man, that he's a godly man, right? not by his own power, not by his own strength, but by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. By the grace of God, there are men who are good men, and they have a good heart, and as a result of that good heart, they produce good works. They do those things that are pleasing to God. Now, of course, in this life, not perfectly, we still have the flesh that we contend, that we have to contend with, but it is impossible that someone would have a, a new heart, a good heart, and that he would never produce any good fruit. Right. How can that be? How can a person have the Spirit of God in them and yet not produce the fruit of the Spirit? It is impossible for that to be the case. Now, again, in this life, they will still have to fight against sin, and there will be in the believer a mixture of, of good and evil, but there will be the presence of good deeds because we are good men with a good heart by the power of God, by the grace of God. Jeremiah 31, well actually we'll go to Jeremiah for both of these. Jeremiah 31 in verses 31 to 34 describes the new heart the new heart that is given by the Spirit of God. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So there, it is a heart with the Spirit of God 
writing the law of God on the heart. That's the new heart. The old heart was a dead heart, was a wicked heart. It did not have the law of God written upon it, but rather it wanted to do the exact opposite of the law of God. That's the heart that the people had when God brought them out of Egypt. And God did not give them the new heart, right? That's why they broke the covenant, because they had a dead heart and they could not keep it. But God will give this kind of heart. And when the Spirit writes the law on the heart, then what happens to that man's life? What happens to his deeds? What happens to his words? Right? They change, right? They change. So that he now is producing the deeds of repentance, the fruits of the Spirit. This is Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is David describing his life because of what happens in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. He has the law on the heart, and as a result of the law on the heart, he has the law in his mind, in his mouth, in his hands, in his feet, in all of his life. He wants to keep the law of God. So that is the good man who has a good heart. The good treasure in the heart is the Spirit of God writing the law of God on the heart, and the result is he produces good. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 teaches the other side. This is the dead heart, the dead heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the natural heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick. Sick with what? Sick with sin. Yes, sick with sin. And if a person has a heart sick with sin, then what is going to come out in his life? Sin, right? Evil, evil deeds. The good man, because he has a good treasure in his heart, produces good. The evil man, because he has an evil treasure in his heart, produces evil. And this is his explanation as to why they are blaspheming God, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and accusing Jesus of having a demon. What kind of heart do these people have? They have an evil heart, an evil heart that is manifesting itself in their evil words, in their evil words. And here... The focus is on their words. Not that their deeds aren't evil as well, because ultimately they want to kill him and put him to death. But it is their words that are here manifesting what is true of them spiritually. That's why in verse 36, he goes to their words. For I, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Every careless word that people speak. This, these, there are some verses in the Bible that should cause us to sober up. To sober up, to think about it, to ponder it. Actually, this one should cause us to shut up, right? Some words should cause us to be quiet and to, be, to, to think about our life. Do we consider this as we go throughout the day? Every careless word that people speak they shall give an accounting for it on the day of judgment. That every idle word, every thought, every deed, we will give an accounting of it on the day of judgment. We need to be very careful with what we're saying, what we're speaking, and make sure that if we open our mouth, what we are saying is true. It's true, it's righteous, it's consistent with the word of God. Especially if we're giving people advice. 
if we're teaching them. According to James chapter 3, not many of you should be teachers, my brethren, knowing that we who teach will be held to a stricter judgment. Certainly that is true of the public teacher, the, the one who is up teaching the word of God. But isn't that also true of all of us? Yep. Aren't we all teaching in one way or another all the time? Aren't parents doing that with their children, giving them advice, telling them what they ought to be doing? We, we do this all the time when we talk to people. We're teaching, we're saying, we're speaking about what's true and what people should do and giving advice, doing all these types of things. Well, we should be very careful when we do that and make sure that what we say conforms to the word of God. And if it doesn't, then it's better to keep our mouth shut than to open it and come under the judgment of God. Here, every careless word, they're going to give an accounting of it. Well, these aren't even careless words that they're saying here. They're right. blaspheming. They're blaspheming. So great judgment is going to come upon them because of these things. It says in Romans 14, 12. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one will give an account of himself to God. And one of the things that we will give an account of are words. Our words, what comes out of our mouth. Then he says in 37, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Here, of course, Jesus does not mean that we can speak enough good words, and as long as we speak more good words than bad words, then we're going to go to heaven on the day of judgment. Right? We've got a scale, and on the one side are our good words, and on the other side are our evil words. And as long as our good words outweigh our evil words, then we're going to go to heaven on the day of judgment. He doesn't mean that our words are the basis of our justification. Right. Here, he means the words are the manifestation. The words are the manifestation of what kind of a person we are, whether we are a believer or an unbeliever, whether we have the grace of God or we don't have the grace of God, whether we've been justified by Christ or we've not been justified by Christ. So he means it in the same sense as James chapter 2, 14 to 16. Faith without works is dead. In that here in James, when he's speaking of being justified by works, he doesn't mean that we're doing things for our own salvation. He means that true faith is manifested or proven by good deeds, by works. Because there are many people who say they believe. Many people say that they are followers of Christ, that they have faith, that they are Christians. But how can you tell the difference between a true believer and a false believer? Well, faith without works is dead. Right? The works justify or prove the legitimacy of the faith, of the faith. The justification in terms of salvation is by faith without works. But then the works are what prove or manifest that there is true faith there, true faith. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Here, again, we're talking about faith without works. Right? What kind of faith is that? What good is that faith? If it does not change the person, right? It doesn't change the way that they live. He was an adulterer before, then he converted, and he's still an adulterer. He was a liar before, then he walked down to the front, gave his life to Christ, and he's still a liar. He's not changed in one shape or, or fashion at all. So he has faith. He says he has faith. He has no works. Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. It's obvious. It's a rhetorical question. Right. No. If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and filled, 
yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Right? These are empty words to do that without any content, without any substance. That's what he's talking about here. Many people have faith without substance, right? They have empty words, but there's no reality. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder, right? Aren't there many people who believe that God is one? Many people believe this. Well, okay, that's good. It's true that God is one, but even demons know that. Even the demons know and understand that there is only one God. So yes, that's good and fine. The demons believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? Oh, look at there. James is also calling people names, just like Jesus did in Matthew chapter 12. You foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? There, when he says Abraham our father was justified by works, he means that in the same way that Jesus means it in Matthew chapter 12. His works manifested his faith. But his faith was already in his life for many, many years, for at least 25 years before this event took place. He was already declared righteous by faith in Genesis 15, and this takes place in Genesis chapter 22. It is a proof, a manifestation of the faith that he already had, justified by faith, and then that faith was justified by works, proven by works. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead dead. So there, Abraham, our father, was justified by works. You know, this is the same here. By your words, you will be justified. A man's words will be brought forward on the day of judgment to prove whether he is a child of God or a child of the devil. Right. And again, a person becomes a child of God, not by his words, but by the grace of God. But it's proven on the day of judgment by his words. You will either be justified by your words or your words will condemn you. They will show and prove that you are a child of the devil. And then you will go to hell. Okay, verse 38. Does anybody know what time it is? Okay, great. Okay, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with his generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Here, 
we might say, oh, this is good, right? They're, they're interested. They, they want more. They want more proof. The scribes and Pharisees <laughs> say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Oh, they even call him teacher, right? That's a good title. It's an honorable title. Teacher, we want to see a sign. These people are interested. They're seeking. This is what they'll say. But what does Jesus say? He says that they are an evil and adulterous generation right. that craves for a sign. Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, 22. Greeks seek worldly wisdom and Jews have a craving for signs, for miracles. Right, God, we, we want to believe you. We want to believe your word, but we need more proof. We need more evidence. We need signs, right? We need you to do signs and wonders so that we can believe, right? This is what people do. But what is the ultimate problem? Is the problem lack of evidence? Nope. Is the problem a lack of God proving his faithfulness, his truthfulness, that we ought to depend upon and rely upon his word? Nope. And hasn't Jesus just done a sign in front of them? Yeah. He just threw a demon out of a man and they accuse him of having a demon. And he did many, many signs in the presence of these people. Right. Even raising men from the dead, healing people. And uh, John, according to the uh, Gospel of John, there's not even enough books in the world to contain all the things that Jesus did. He did so many signs and wonders in the presence of these people, and yet here they have the audacity to come and demand and ask for him to perform another sign. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And so Jesus goes to the real issue. The issue is never lack of evidence. It is right. never lack of evidence. There's plenty of evidence to believe in the truthfulness of the Bible. People use these kinds of lame excuses to justify their unbelief. They don't want to repent. They don't want to believe, but they, so then they throw it back on Christ and say, well, if you will do a sign, then we'll believe. But there, what, what sign can Jesus do that's going to convince these people to believe in him. There's nothing that he can do. He's already done everything. There's plenty to be done that has been done in their presence, and yet they refuse to believe. And so Jesus addresses them as an evil and adulterous generation. Right? Again, the proof or the problem isn't lack of evidence. The problem is their heart. They have a hard heart, and they refuse to believe the word of God. It is their own unbelief that keeps them from seeing the glory of Christ. Not a lack of evidence, not a lack of signs. It is their own unbelief and they must repent of this sin. And that's why Jesus addresses them as an evil, adulterous generation. Evil because it is evil to demand signs of God, to put God to the test. We should not do that. And adulterous because they claim to be children of God. But really, they're idol worshipers. They don't believe in God because if they believed in God, then they would be content with the word of God. But they're not content with God's word. They want something else, something greater, something outside of the word of God, some miracle, right? And aren't people like this today? Sure. They love this type of stuff. They love to go to the miracle meetings. To the, They want to see the signs. They want to see these so-called movements of the spirit where everyone's rolling around, flipping and flopping, jumping over this and that, right? And they think, oh, look at this. God is really moving here. And they don't want the simple word of God. They don't want the clear, straightforward teaching in the Bible. And they'll say, oh, the spirit is not at work there. It's not so dead and dull there. Well, the reason it's dead and dull because you're dead and dull. That's the problem is their own heart. They do not 
want to believe. Moses talked about this, and then the Apostle Paul, quoting Moses, talks about this as well in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is commending the word of God to the people and telling them that they simply need to believe it. They just need to believe, right? And this is the way it is for us as well. We don't need God to open up the heavens. We don't need Christ to come down and us to see him face to face. We don't need any of those things. We don't need someone to rise from the dead. We just need to believe the word of God. It's right here. Just believe the word of God. Romans 10 verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there, Moses was telling the people, and then the Apostle Paul is quoting this, and giving us the interpretation. What did Moses mean? When Moses said, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. That is to bring Christ down in parentheses in my Bible. This is the Apostle Paul giving us the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Moses was preaching Christ to the people, and he's telling them, you don't need to see him with your own eyes. You don't need to go to heaven and bring Christ down and see him with your own eyes, and then you can believe in him. And also do not say, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Moses was also preaching his death and resurrection. But he's telling them, you don't need to see his death and resurrection for you to believe in these things. What do you need to do? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. I'm preaching the word of faith to you. You simply need to believe it. People use these lame excuses. Okay, Moses, if we can see it with our own eyes, then we'll believe. And he's saying, no, you don't need to see it. I've put the word in your mouth and in your heart, meaning I've taught you so clearly everything that you need to know for life and godliness. All that is lacking is your faith, your faith, your repentance. You must believe these things. And that's the same as Jesus is saying here. I'm not going to give you a sign. You don't need a sign. That's not the problem. The issue is not lack of evidence. The issue is unbelief. You need to repent. So no sign is going to be given to this adulterous generation, except one sign, the sign of Jonah the prophet. And what is the sign of Jonah the prophet? Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Jonah, his sign is death and resurrection. Because when the way I take uh, Jonah chapter 2 is when Jonah was thrown into the sea, that, that Jonah died, and then Jonah was brought back to life by the power of God when the fish vomited him back up. I don't think it very plausible that he was alive for three days in this sea monster in the ocean. That he died, was swallowed, the monster was a grave for him, a tomb for him, and then three days later he was raised and he was spit out of that tomb. Well, in the same way, the Son of Man will be three days in the earth. And then what will happen? The earth will spit him out, right? He will rise up out of there and will come back to life. And this miracle of the resurrection of Christ is all that we need to know, to know that he is the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 4. We don't need anything else. That's all we need to know, that he died and he rose again. And do we have credible witnesses telling us of the death and resurrection of Christ? Well, who do we have telling us about his death and resurrection? The holy apostles. And we know that they can't lie because they were led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God speaking through reliable men, holy men, godly men, not crazy men, godly men. And they were speaking to us the very word of God. So we have everything that we need right there. That is the sign that they will see. The sign of Jonah the prophet. Then verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a sign and a symbol of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in terms of the sign and symbol, and then the fulfillment, the fulfillment is the greater part, right? The greater part. Yes, Jonah's resurrection was a great thing. It was a great miracle, but it's not as great as the resurrection of Christ, right? It's not as great and significant as the resurrection of Christ. So Jonah is the sign, and then Jesus is the thing signified. And in terms of the relationship between the sign and what it signifies, the thing signified is the greater part. This is the way it always works, just like it was with the temple. The temple on earth was a symbol of the temple in heaven. Well, of the two, which one is greater? The one on earth or the one in heaven? Well, the, the heavenly one is greater. The Jerusalem on earth was a symbol of the Jerusalem above. And which of those two is greater? Of course, the heavenly one is far greater than the earthly one. Well, here, Jonah was a sign and symbol of the resurrection of Christ. And the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. They had the lesser revelation, Jonah, and yet they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, is it a great blessing to have a prophet come to your town and preach the gospel to you? Of course it is. That is a great blessing. But is it as great as having Jesus Christ preach the gospel to you? No. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Someone greater than Jonah is here, and what are these people doing? They won't repent. So what will the men of Nineveh do on the day of judgment? They're going to rise up and condemn this generation. They're going to say to them, how could you not believe him? How could you not repent? Jonah came to our town and we repented, and yet you had Christ, the one that Jonah preached about, and you wouldn't repent when he came to you. You people are worse than the Ninevites. Right, and these are Ninevites. People of Nineveh were better than the people of Judah and of Israel and in this area. Then also the queen of the south. 
she also will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Here, the correlation is the same. The queen of the south came all the way from the ends of the earth, hundreds of miles away, likely five to six hundred miles away. Her kingdom was south of Egypt, and she traveled this great distance to come and see the wisdom of Solomon. She had heard about it, and she wanted to see it with her own eyes. And she came all that way to hear and to see the wisdom of Solomon, to see his kingdom. Well, is that a great blessing? To see the kingdom of Solomon, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It's a great blessing that she experienced and that she saw there. But is it as great as hearing the wisdom of Christ? Because Solomon's wisdom did not originate with Solomon. Where did Solomon's wisdom come from? His wisdom came from Christ. Solomon was a conduit, right? But Christ was the source. And they don't have to go to the ends of the earth to hear it. He's coming to their villages. They don't have to put any effort out. He's right there in front of them. She came all that distance. She believed, and yet they refused to believe. She believed with a lesser wisdom, and they refused to believe with the greater source of wisdom. So she will rise up in the judgment and condemn them as well because of their unbelief, their unbelief. And we know according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we will judge angels, right? We will judge angels. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that one of the things that God will give to his people is that we will, on the day of judgment, we will participate in the judgment with Christ. Christ is the one that it has been given to, and then he will share that with us as well. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So that's what Jesus is talking about. When the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south rise up in judgment, he's talking about on the last day that the saints will judge the world. They will judge the world. And here he also talks about that we will judge the fallen angels as well with Christ. So if we can judge the world on the day of judgment and the angels on the day of judgment, then can't we make judgments in this life on what's right and wrong, what people should do in this situation and that situation? How can we not know what to do in this situation? That's why he's condemning, chiding them because of their uh, foolishness and lack of wisdom. Okay, well, I think we'll stop there for tonight. I was anticipating going all the way through 50. So close, so close, so close, but not quite. But there's a lot to say there, right? There's a lot to say there. And uh, so I think we'll stop there for tonight. And we have a few minutes for questions. Any questions or comments? Uh, So we can talk about those things now.